Why are the pictures square if the lens is round? <laughs> it's entirely possible that during his heyday, you never bought an album from the genius Gil Scott Heron. What has happened is that in the last 20 years, America has changed from a producer to a consumer. And all consumers know that when the producer names the tune, the consumer has got to dance. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about Aperture and pop culture. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Akimbo's small business workshop is back. It's back because it works. Find out what you're missing. Find out how to work it better. Find out the path forward. Here's my friend Ramon Ray to tell you about it. In this workshop, you'll learn what you need to start and grow your business. Students have told us that the workshop helped them think and rethink their assumptions about small business success. Students said they no longer felt alone in growing their business. Listen, we know owning a business has a lot of challenges. And in the Small Business Workshop, we give you the framework to help you make the choices you need to make to overcome these challenges. I can't wait to see you in the Akimbo Small Business Workshop. Find out more at akimbo.com slash go. Hope to see you there. In the early 1980s, five women in Los Angeles were gigging almost every night, playing a new kind of music, one that their fans loved. They had a hit single ready to go, and they were rejected by almost every single record label in the world. It's only through the persistent effort of their manager that they were able to finally end up on IRS records. And you already know what happened to the Go-Go's. Their debut album sold more than 2 million copies. It was one of the most successful debut albums of all time. And it was the first and still the only number one record created and performed by an all-women rock and roll group. How is that possible? Or consider the movie The Big Lebowski. You want a toe? I can get you a toe. Believe me. There are ways, dude. You don't want to know about it, believe me. Yeah, but Walter... Hell, I can get you a toe by 3 o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. The Big Lebowski only cost $15 million to make. It has returned that many times over. The Big Lebowski is not a movie that most studios wanted to make. Even though the Coen brothers had a great reputation, after it debuted at Sundance, it didn't get stunning reviews. And yet, to this day, people are watching that movie when lots of the other movies, even the popular ones of its time, are completely ignored. What's going on here? And what about Gil Scott Heron? Well, the reason that camera lenses are round but pictures are square is that the light that goes through a camera lens isn't admitted through the whole lens. It's admitted through a very small hole in the lens. A pinhole camera, the hole is actually a little bit bigger than a pin. It turns out that through that little tiny hole, plenty of photons can work their way to the other side, landing on a square piece of film, hence the picture. The music business is a great example of this aperture thinking. In the 1980s, 
when the Go-Go's were trying to break through, here's what was scarce. Radio time and record store space. You couldn't get in the record store unless you were on the radio, and you couldn't get on the radio unless you fit into the mold that the program director decided their station matched up with. The reason that most people in the United States didn't get to hear Gil Scott Heron is that there wasn't a radio station format aligned with the kind of music he wanted to make. And so as a pioneer, he was ignored. What ends up happening, though, when a band like the Go-Go's somehow gets the lucky break it needs to get started, combined with the extraordinary artistry and insight of their hit song, is it turns out consumers don't really want to be put in the box that program directors are putting them in. And so the chain of there's a listener, there's a program director, there's a record executive, there's management, there's the people who book the gigs, that entire chain is based on a flawed assumption. And the flawed assumption is we can't take a risk. We have to put out what people already like and what they already want because we can't waste our shot. And so conservatism kicks in. It kicks in for Broadway shows. It kicked in for books. It kicked in for music. It kicked in for anything where there was a gatekeeper because the gate is an aperture, a small little hole between the people who create things and the market that is open to consuming it. And here's the punchline. You've already guessed it. We got rid of the gatekeepers in many ways. There is definitely a portion of the population that wants to listen to what the gatekeepers pick. But what the long tail, as named by Chris Anderson, is simple to understand, but really deep and profound on its impact on our culture. And it's this. Anyone can publish a book on the Kindle. Anyone can put a song on iTunes. Anybody can perform a play in their house and put it on YouTube. Suddenly, it's horizontal. It's not vertical. Suddenly, the scarcity is not the program director, the space in the record store, the ability to book a theater. None of those things are driving culture today. And of course, this idea of the aperture doesn't just apply to Broadway plays or to music or to books. It also applied for a really long time to the news. And that helps us see the double-edged sword, that what happened in newsrooms across the world for a 100 years is a meeting every day about what goes on the front page, a meeting about how long an article could be, a meeting about whether something doesn't appear in the paper at all. Because the opportunity cost of running a story in the newspaper is you can't run a different story. And this scarcity, having to push things through a small aperture to reach a large audience, created the very idea of our culture having a center. And so the good news, the good news is new voices are being heard. The good news is there is no opportunity cost because the web isn't going to run out of room. There's an unlimited amount of space on blogs or on Medium or on podcasts for that matter. But, and it's a big but, without a gatekeeper, nobody is responsible. And the dynamic has shifted from, I better be careful 
because my spot as a gatekeeper is at risk if I am careless or hurtful. Two, there is an incentive for me to be reckless because being reckless gets you the attention of people on the fringe, whereas being careful makes you one of many in the center. And so the dynamic in the media, in all media, has now shifted away from the conservative idea of one voice, one culture, people in sync. I can prove it. Here are the facts. Let's make sure this isn't a dud. Two, let's get a little bit crazy about this. Let's go way to the edges. It doesn't matter if it's true. If it bleeds, it leads. And so we're all surrounded by bleeding. Now, cultural imperialism is also aligned with this, and that's not a good thing. The whole idea of being able to keep some music from being heard by people, not rewarding certain kinds of acts, keeping the, quote, purity, unquote, of different kinds of arts the same, right? White men who are artists hung in galleries or white men who are part of rock and roll groups. And the irony, the punchline at the end is that Broadway, which has the most scarcity and a scarcity that will continue for as long as there is Broadway, because it is not digital and there aren't very many theaters, has been inherently conservative in that Broadway musicals almost always sort of look and feel like Broadway musicals. It is a very distinct genre unto itself. Well, a few years ago, the Go-Go's, remember the Go-Go's? The Go-Go's, who couldn't get a record made. The Go-Go's, who became a sensation with their best-selling debut, ended up with a Broadway show. And I saw it, and it was great. They somehow figured out how to merge together this new wave pop band with teenagers who wanted to go to a Broadway show with the genre of a Broadway musical. I wish I had seen it more than once. I saw it two days before it closed, and I miss it. Where do we go from here? Where we go from here is an understanding that the long tail, which allows lots of voices to be heard, also means that most things that get heard don't get heard by very many people. That the average book on the Kindle is getting read by a dozen people, perhaps. That the average song on the iTunes store probably gets heard two or three or four times. Just do the math. With a million new things coming out, how could it be any more than that? And so... Culture, culture wants to coalesce. Culture wants to be able to say people like us do things like this. But it's not going to be limited by the FCC saying there's only 18 FM radio frequencies available. It's going to be limited by who collects permission, who earns the right to be a new kind of gatekeeper, who, by mentioning a book on their blog or by mentioning another video on their YouTube channel, is able to make something a hit. And I think we will probably end up back closer to a medium tail. That the long tail starts to get banal and inane when it gets too extreme. And the gatekeepers, the Dick Clarks picking the winners, not enough. But somewhere in the middle, there might be a sweet spot. And along the way, what each of us as creators of culture has the chance to do is hone our voice, practice shipping the work figure out what our smallest viable audience is, 
see them, understand them, cater to them, give them something that they want to share. And then if we can earn permission to do it, we can become our own gatekeeper. And that is really where all of this settles out. Each of us is going to become responsible for what we put our name on. Each of us is going to have a following, maybe five people, maybe 50,000 people. And what we do with that following, we can't use as an excuse, oh, this is what everyone is doing. We can't use as an excuse, that's all my boss would let me do. Instead, we get to stand up for what's right and to bring things we're proud of to the world. We will never have hits like MASH was a hit, like Elton John was a hit, and yes, like the Go-Go's were a hit. Where we're going to end up is somewhere closer to the middle, where some people are going to be able to find their true fans and make the work that they are proud of, and being proud of your work and not hiding behind a badge or a label or some sort of anonymity is the only way to make things better. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, Not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Couple questions this week about the rights and responsibilities of giant corporations. But first, here's a question from Jeff. Hi, Seth. Thanks for all that you do and share. And thank you for answering my last question a couple of years ago. As a parent of two small children, I think about the world they're growing into and fully agree with you that the best skills they could learn would be how to solve interesting problems and how to lead. One other skill that seems important, though may fall under leadership, is storytelling. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts or suggestions on how to develop the skill of storytelling in kids. Maybe it's as simple as having them tell stories, but your unique view on this would be appreciated. Thanks, Jeff. Your kids are lucky to have you. My take, having spent a lot of time with a lot of kids, 
is that kids are really good at telling stories. They are told stories, they listen to stories, and they tell stories. But two things are getting in the way as we go forward. The first one is that adults rush them. We are so busy trying to get back to our email or to our adult conversation or to whatever is coming in on social media that we just want the TLDR, the bottom line, the short version of how was their day. And when a kid starts telling a 10 or 15 minute story that could be three sentences, we drift away. So part of it is on us to make the space for the kid to talk. And the second half is that same social media iPad thing. If before the pandemic you were at a restaurant and you watched some kid who's two years old eating chicken fingers, the likelihood is that they also have an iPad in front of them. And an iPad is basically a digital pacifier when you're at that age. There might be some positive side effects from that sort of digital manipulation that kids are taught at an early age. But there's also no doubt that digital one-way call it propaganda, leaves very little room for a kid to tell a story. The what happens next story, the will you invent your own character story, the coloring outside the lines story. So we can model storytelling for our kids by handing them the work of the greatest storytellers in the world, but we also have to give them room for them to practice in a really safe and encouraging way, telling their own stories. Hey, Seth, this is Mickey from Atlanta. I've heard you mention that Google doesn't like blogs as much anymore, and I think you might be viewing it through the wrong lens, but I see a larger problem. Now, I don't have these numbers, and they're likely not even attainable, but I'm willing to guess that 10 years ago, a much higher percentage of your audience had their own blog. When they talked about your content on their own blogs, those were huge signals to Google to rank your stuff higher. Those kinds of signals are still very valuable to Google, but your audience doesn't tend to produce that kind of content as much anymore. Case in point is my recent Alt-MBA experience. It was a phenomenal program, but I was stunned at how few people had their own blog. Of my cohort of 20 people, two have blogs, and between them they post maybe once or twice a month. Granted, many of these folks generate content in other ways, such as writing books or producing podcasts, but if they mention your content in either of those mediums, it gives you essentially no value in the eyes of Google. I've been pushing my friends to blog more, both my long-term friends and new colleagues from the Alt-MBA, and a few are picking it up, but the vast majority aren't, and it's a little frustrating. Why do you think people are unwilling to take the time to unpack their thoughts in a medium like this? Thanks for all you do. Thank you for this, Mickey, and I am hesitant to sound self-serving when I talk about Google, because yes, Google definitely puts my blog's emails into people's promotional and spam folder, even though there's no good reason to do that. And there is also no doubt that Google is sending less traffic to blogs overall. One of the things that Google has sold the world on really hard, that is just a straight up falsehood, is the idea that the algorithm is simply received wisdom, that it came from on high, that it cannot be changed, that it should never be manipulated, that the algorithm is the algorithm. For example, today there was a front page article in the New York Times about people who make a living preying on folks who can ill afford it, where someone writes a nasty article about someone on some scammy site, then they repeat it and multiply it onto dozens of other sites and then charge that person to take it down. And then once that person starts paying, they just repeat it again 
and do the process all over again. And none of it would work if Google would assign just an engineer or two to making sure that no traffic went to these sites that serve no useful function. But it's not even mentioned in the article that I could see that it's Google's job to do this because apparently the algorithm is the algorithm. That's crazy talk. You don't go to the library and expect that every single book ever published is on the shelves and in the card catalog. The librarian's job includes curation. And I think that Google somehow managed to say it's okay to make billions and billions of dollars pointing to information, but that they are not responsible in any way for curating it. But of course, they are curating it. They are curating it because of the thousands of people who write the algorithm because it's not being written by a computer. It's being written by people. And so when you see recipes on the internet, they're formatted in that weird way where there's pictures and stories and stories and stories, and then finally you read the recipe. Well, that's because Google rewarded pages for being written that way. That's a form of curation. And what happened with Google and blogs shortly after they shut down Google Reader was they realized that blogs aren't a good way for Google to make money. And so they manipulated the algorithm. There are plenty of places where they can point people that make it likely that they will come back and do another search. And it's on searches that Google makes money. They don't make money when someone subscribes to a blog. So the first part of your question, yeah, I think it's on Google here to say, are we elevating or diminishing the culture, the culture of the web? Because the web is a place just like everywhere else. And Google could make some small changes that would dramatically shift what we encounter, how we encounter it, what we do when we find what we're looking for. Wikipedia, which is a treasure, only is a treasure because Google defaulted to pointing to them in most search results early and up top. That was a choice of curation. I put that one down as a win. But I think their neglect of blogs is a loss. And then the second half of your question, most people who write blogs shouldn't write a blog because you're going to get a lot of traffic. They shouldn't write a blog because they're going to make money. They should write a blog because expressing ourselves in a semi-public, consistent and persistent way is a magical way to learn and to keep track of our lives. Part of the problem with Twitter is the hand-to-hand -hand combat, the short little bon mots and phrases that are only good if someone responds, reacts, or otherwise engages with you. That doesn't lead us to long-term critical thinking. It leads us to playing a sort of ping pong. And if you like tweeting, please go ahead. But I think that most kids and most adults should have a blog, even if it's under an assumed name, just to have the discipline, the practice of showing up to do this work. Thank you for that, Mickey. And now, of course, on to Apple. Hi, Seth. It's Ross here from Cape Town. Um, I have a question for you regarding Apple and their latest decision to enable subscriptions for podcasts. So my question is, is this development encouraging people to join into a race to the bottom to try and make the most popular podcast 
for a dollar a month from as many people as possible? Or is it giving artists their due uh, money for valuable content? I'm sure it's a bit of both, but I suppose my question is around Apple as a platform. Do they have a moral obligation uh, to our culture to make some one a decision one way or another? Um, should they have done this, basically? Um, I worry that... Um, some sort of race to the bottom is encouraged by this and uh, especially given your podcast is on Apple Podcasts. Okay. Um, thanks very much and keep up the good work. We love your podcast. Cheers. Bye-bye. So Apple largely popularized the podcast. They didn't invent it. They didn't name it but they popularized it, and then they just let it sit there. They did half-hearted attempts to promote certain podcasts over others, but they really just let it sit there because there wasn't a business model for them. And like Google, they are really focused much more in the last 10 years on quarterly income than they are on changing the culture. But podcasts are a way of changing the culture. Lots of interested, interesting, smart people spend time listening to and making podcasts. So the question is, how do we decide? Because if it's all in a big pile and they're hard to search because they're in audio, not in text, which podcasts get picked? Which ones get listened to? Do we need another true crime podcast? And so, yes, on one hand, we need an open system because if someone has something to say, we don't want a gatekeeper to keep them from saying it not at least until some people have heard it. But on the other hand, there is always going to be curation. Even Apple's lazy curation was curation of a sort. And so when you add money to the mix, yes, some people are going to figure out how to make money doing this the same way they do in movies and television and music. But it doesn't mean that the best music is sitting right there next to Taylor Swift on the top 40. The best music for you, for me, might not make a lot of money, but it makes a cultural impact. And the same thing will continue to be true for podcasts. And if along the way, podcasters can get past selling ads, which actually pushes them faster toward the bottom, and instead adopt more of a, call it a substack model, where people are paying to listen to the podcasts they want to listen to, it feels to me like it could elevate the discourse. But just like Google, there's the question, are they curating? How are they curating? Should it simply be up for bid? I don't think so. I think there's room, urgent need for curators in pop culture, and they can own it, and they can make a profit doing it, but they can get there by making things better. If we look at any random 10 hours of Netflix, it's way better than any 10 hours of ABC TV in 1977. That's because someone at Netflix decided to curate. And I think if Netflix can do it, Apple can do it, and so can Google. There isn't some invisible algorithm. There's just people. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible 
or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.